0: This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here.
1: Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, organized crime and auto thefts, investing in women in sports, and spelling bee champs coming to York Region. But we begin with the epidemic of loneliness. Last week, the U.S. Surgeon General released an 85-page advisory declaring loneliness a new public health epidemic in America. Are we headed in the same direction? Is loneliness becoming a serious mental health hazard here in Canada? Here with details on how loneliness and isolation are negatively impacting the lives of many Canadians is Rebecca Shields, CEO, Canadian Mental Health Association, York Region, and South Simcoe. Rebecca, welcome to the show. I'm really glad that you're joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So what exactly is happening here in Canada in terms of loneliness?
2: Well, you know, we all experience episodic loneliness. That's normal. Whether we have traditions, we move, we lose somebody. But I think what we're really talking about, what happens when somebody goes from that episodic loneliness into that chronic loneliness? And, you know, and then they really feel isolated. And that's when it starts to really impact their health. Their well-being and all the risk factors come up. I don't know if you know this, Anne, but you know chronic loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's a real concern for us at the Canadian Mental Health Association and all of our partners to help people manage and and deal with chronic loneliness and basically deal with loneliness in our society.
1: How does loneliness manifest itself, and how does it happen to a person? Well, that's
2: a really great question because. As you know, from the pandemic, a lot of us experience a little bit of that episodic loneliness, which is totally normal. And it's really an individual experience about not just the quantity of connections that you have, but that quality of connections that you have. So somebody might have lots and lots of connections, whether online, but they can still feel really lonely and then there's other people who may only have one or two good people in their life, but that quality is there and they feel really connected and that sense of belonging and purpose that we associate um, with that wellness. And so how does it happen? As I said, you know, some of the risk factors can be things like moving and transition, grief and loss off of a, a relationship, a spouse. Um, it can be about people who are refugees and new to our communities who've had to move away from a world that they knew, even if it's a positive move, where they've come for a new job, they can still lose things. And an area where we see it a lot, of course, and we talk about it a lot, is you know, our youth that go to university. And then they feel really alone in colleges and that transition in their life where they lose their circle of friends. So those are places where people can you know, end up feeling really lonely for a long period of time.
1: And can loneliness also be a sign of something greater like depression? Can depression lead to loneliness?
2: Well, I think they're interrelated, and that's what the research says. So, you know, people who experience chronic loneliness have higher rates of anxiety and depression, but the way we need to think about loneliness and belonging is that humans are hardwired for belonging. We need it in our very DNA to survive. That's how we've grown up. So just like we need water and food, if you don't have water, you begin to dehydrate, and your body um, uh, has impacts. And same things if you don't eat, right? It starts to deteriorate. Well, actually, chronic loneliness, the same thing happens. So not only do we see it in anxiety and depression, we see it in terms of a whole bunch of physical impacts as well that include, you know, higher risk for chronic illnesses. We see, you know, all kinds of breakdowns of the body from, this, from basically the stress of chronic loneliness. And, in fact, there's some great research that came out of Alberta Where they looked at the number one reason a senior would end up in hospital and stay there was because of chronic loneliness. Hmm. So because it can exacerbate existing conditions. So it's so much bigger than just uh, anxiety and depression but it can lead, it can certainly be a factor to that and in fact it's a real risk factor for suicide. So we, you know, we pay a lot of attention to this. They want to support people for their own health and well-being.
1: So it's not just a feeling, it it can actually do damage to your physical health as well. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. The U.S. Surgeon General declaring that loneliness is a new public health epi- epidemic in the United States. Are we moving toward that here in Canada? Is this something that's becoming a crisis?
2: I think it's really important. I've been watching this and I got really interested way back before the pandemic. I think the pandemic highlighted it. But, you know, the rates in Canada range from community to community, We've, where people report chronic loneliness anywhere from 10% all the way up to about 40% of people can feel lonely at any given time. And in Ontario, we found uh, through CMHA uh, research that over a quarter of Canadians are experiencing loneliness regularly, and almost 10%, especially the ages of 50 plus, feel that they're often lonely. So. These are huge numbers when we talk about what we talked about before, the impacts on our overall physical and mental and emotional well-being. And when those things are in play, you know, it certainly, incre- it certainly puts at risk our relationships. It puts at risk our health care and our health care costs and employment. So there's really, you know, there's both individual, family, and societal impacts to that.
1: Can we talk about the relationship between loneliness and social media? Should we be reevaluating our relationship with technology? You know, you feel like you're you've got a million friends, you have all kinds of 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 uh, connections with people through social media, but you're sitting all by yourself in your home or your apartment, and you are lonely. It's such an important
2: way of framing it is when I went back and I talked about the quantity versus the quality of those relationships where people feel that they have a reciprocal relationship with somebody where they can rely on them and count on them so that they are known and seen by a person. And so somebody, you're right, somebody might have a lot of uh, periods of time online. uh, We call it doom scrolling and other (laughs) ways. But so they're they're busy but they're not really connected and, and they, they end that period on time and they feel all alone again. So again it's individual. There are people who spend a lot of time online and may not have those same experiences, but the risk that we see is that by spending time online in those more artificial, you don't really know somebody, somebody doesn't know you you miss that chance of that real connection belonging that we actually need, as I said, like as, as a physical, it's, it's the way that we are produced as humans How we survived to feel that we belong and are connected. So it is a risk factor. And so we always talk about like what's a balance in life. We want to be online and, and read our news or listen to
3: our, our news.
2: We want to uh, share pictures with our family and our friends abroad. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're having time to really connect with people, spend time outside, and build those relationships.
1: It's also a little bit challenging and maybe dangerous to compare yourself to other people. So when you are online and you are sending out photos or you are seeing photos of what other people are doing, it can certainly make you feel a little bit like a loser.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, we all have to balance our own uh, spiritual and and personal self-worth against other people. And, you know, what I've always, you know, what I've said to my kids and, and what my parents said to me is, Rebecca, you're going to go around the room. There's always going to be somebody who's thinner than you and somebody you're thinner mm-hmm. than. There's somebody who's going prettier than you, somebody who's smarter than you. Like, you know, the world has 7 billion people. <laughs> so to try to compare ourselves is really uh, an experience of realizing that we all belong and yes. that the world is made up of this wonderful place where we can all... Uh, be who we are and find the people that we connect with and whether we do that through our communities and our community centers and sports or arts or culture or news groups or or bike clubs or whatever it is, it's so important to get out and and be even in your faith communities uh, with the people that that you enjoy and, and want to connect with. And it's really important that we take steps Um, And then know that if you're struggling, that, you know, places like the Canadian Mental Health Association, we're here to help. If you're feeling in that place of stuck, sometimes you need a little bit of help to get unstuck, whatever that reason for getting stuck is. And know that it happens to people all the time. And so whether you're stuck because of grief and you've lost somebody or you're stuck because you've lost a job or you're stuck because of other transitions, it's okay to ask for help to help get unstuck because
1: it's just part of life. And how do you know when it's time to seek help? You know, I, I would
2: tell people, you know, that it's usually an awakening to that. You know, when all of a sudden you think, gosh, you know, I used to go out, I used to do all these, and now I feel like I just can't. And you realize that it's impacted the ways that you live daily. And when you start to see maybe it's your sleep and, and it's been, you know, it's been more than a few nights, it's now a few weeks and your sleep's off or you find you're agitated all the time, when your behaviors seem to change. And sometimes you don't even notice it. It can be a friend or a relative or a coworker that says, you know what, you just haven't been yourself lately. And if you feel like you haven't been yourself lately or you notice somebody, that's when it's time to reach out before it ends up at a full-blown crisis. Because all mental illness and mental health needs, it's just like physical health. It's like that... You know, it's like that sore arm. If you go early when you first notice it, we can treat it because your brain is an organ. <laughs> and if the earlier intervention, the more likely we are to treat and help you recover faster. But the longer that you wait, the longer it can take us to, to help and promote your recovery. So I always say to people, if, you, if you're thinking it, it's probably already time.
1: Rebecca, you offer Coping Strategies online, uh, your website, mm-hmm. Canadian Mental Health Association, York Region, and South Simcoe. So where do people go, what is your website, and, and what can they expect from the information that they get from you?
2: Well, we make sure that we're a trusted source of information, and we work with all of our research and healthcare partners to make sure that we're providing you with accessible information that makes sense. Um, you know, there's a phone number right up at the top, one 345 183 So you can always call just if you have any questions. But if you just, whether you're Googling and you put in CMHA York and you look under loneliness, uh, you'll find us. You can find some really great tips. And it's something to sort of think about. It's sort of that place of, you know, where can I start? Yeah. Where can I start by thinking about what's one thing that maybe I like doing um, that will make me get out and connect with somebody? Or maybe it's just reminding yourself to call that friend or to call that family member that you haven't connected with and um, giving yourself the courage and the permission to be brave and honest and, and, and be brave. And the one thing that I've always, um, my greatest tip and the greatest lesson I ever learned is that uh, one of the best ways that you can solve loneliness is by helping others. There's nothing more valuable than volunteering or just helping that neighbor take out the garbage or clean up their yard if you're seeing them because in the act of giving, you often receive and that connects you. Um, and so, sometimes just if you feel like you can't ask for help, if you can give help, that provides a connection. So. A few little tips, but take a look at our website for more Um, and know, again, there's that number 1-866-345-0183. Call us if you have any questions or you you just feel like maybe there's someone you or someone you know that needs help and we'll be there with our central intake to answer. It's not crisis. It's not a 24-7 line. It's our intake line. Um, So if you're in crisis, you can call uh, 310-COPE. That's our community crisis
1: line. Rebecca Shields, CEO, CMHA, York Region South Simcoe, thank you very much. Thank you and have a great day. And still with your well-being, the World Health Organization declared on Friday, May the 5th, that the COVID-19 pandemic was no longer a global health emergency. Here with his thoughts on this next big step is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases physician whose guiding light and steady hand helped so many of us navigate the choppy and often frightening pandemic waters. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Isaac, great to have you with us again.
4: Oh, thanks for having me back on.
1: So first and foremost, this recent declaration by no means signals that the pandemic is over, correct?
4: Spot on. I mean, they, it really just says that the emergency phase is over. And when we take a step back and think about it, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. We're not even remotely close to being in the same place right now as we were in 2020 or 2021 or even the early part of 2022. Obviously, the virus is still here. We know it's going to wax and wane indefinitely but it's not even remotely close to how bad things were when we were just getting pummeled wave after wave after wave, you know, overwhelming healthcare systems and whatnot. So we are in a better place now.
1: And what would the WHO have done in terms of checks and balances making this decision to make the declaration?
4: You know, they didn't take this lightly. And in, in fact, they were considering lifting this, uh, this declaration earlier, but uh, China had lifted its... Zero COVID policy in China was in the midst of a massive, massive wave at the time, and they were cautious. and They said, "You know what? This still constitutes uh, a public health emergency of international concern." Uh, that's the technical term, uh, and they were mindful that there could be other variants that were emerging and uh, and other issues globally. So they they pushed pause on lifting on lifting this um, until just this past week, and. and you know, they didn't say so explicitly, but I think most people recognize that it's likely because of the massive wave that occurred in China.
1: And what does it mean in terms of understanding this declaration? What What is now not available? What is now not mandated? What's the difference?
4: You know, for day-to-day citizens, it's probably not going to mean a thing. Uh, and people will carry on, carrying on as they have been for, you know, the last you know, year or so, but um, from a, a global health standpoint, it's just a signal to the world that yes, you know, COVID is still here. They, they explicitly urged countries to continue to monitor for this and prepare for uh, you know, COVID to continue to, you know, sadly, be disruptive, but just that it's not to the same extent that it was before, and it does not constitute a global public health emergency at this point.
1: And would the World Health Organization have looked closely at data, for instance, when it comes to deaths by COVID and ICU admissions?
4: I mean, they're looking at all the data that they have available with the caveat that this is imperfect data. And, uh, you know, you see that global deaths from COVID, well, of course, they're still unacceptably high. They're far better than they were uh, at at other points uh, during the pandemic. Um, We now have widespread access to vaccinations. There's greater access to therapeutics, Uh, uh, there are the tools to create safer indoor spaces and and protect individuals and communities from the virus. You know, they urged countries to to continue the fight. Uh, They by no means said that this is over, but uh, but I think, you know, they also acknowledge that we we, we do have tools to continue the
1: fight with. So, Isaac, could the lifting of the emergency status lead to a resurgence of infections? And I know that that's connecting dots that are really far apart, but in the middle of those dots is one that in particular says that people are, when they get a signal like this, this declaration, they kind of go, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's not important anymore. COVID just isn't important.
4: I I honestly don't know. I think people have made whatever decisions they're going to make months and months ago, and I'm not sure that this is going to change much. Uh, I I really don't. I could be wrong. Listen, I think if you ask 100 people, you might get 100 different responses here. Um, But I think people who have decided that COVID is not an issue for them anymore have already behaved in that manner. And uh, others who are still taking some, some precautions against it getting infected or transmitting to others uh probably aren't gonna change much based on, on this particular statement. But you know, I think we've got a relatively health literate society right now. I mean, mm-hmm. over the last few years we've had you know public discussions on, you know, items that you'd never would even have imagined discussed publicly, like PCR tests and rapid antigen tests and different types of vaccines. Mm-hmm. So I think many people are are aware of what COVID is, what it does, how it's transmitted, how to protect themselves in our are making choices based on what they see as the best plan forward. So I I don't know if this actually changes how people behave at a a more granular
1: level. There was a lot of reaction when this declaration was made, including from Theresa Tam, Canada's top doc. She says that Canada will continue to monitor COVID-19, and this is what scared me, prepare for the fall, and I'm not making light of it, but we certainly, you know, we we put all of that away because we've been through this for years, but then when... Dr. Tam says, and prepare for the fall. What does she mean by that?
4: Well, we're going to have a predictable rise in respiratory viruses circulating in the fall and in the winter. We have it every year uh, with flu and with RSV. Uh, COVID is circulating throughout the year, but certainly we know that it does ebb and flow and it will see a predictable rise during various parts of the year, especially when we're more, when we're gathered in, in indoor settings. You know, I remind people too, we had a, you know, a a bump in cases over the fall and winter, depending on where you were on the planet, especially in in Canada, but it wasn't nearly as significant as it was versus the past few years. So, for example, we did have, you know, the emergence of sub-lineages of Omicron uh, uh, emerge, and, you know, they certainly did lead to a rise in cases, and sadly that led to a bump in hospitalizations and sadly that led to a bump in deaths i'm not saying that's okay it's, it obviously isn't but when we compare the winter that we just had versus the two prior winters i mean it was it was a night and day difference i mean people might not remember this but you know prior to that we 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 had our healthcare system that was overwhelmed like we had tents set outside of hospitals we were putting adults in pediatric intensive care units we were shuttling healthcare providers between provinces to help Care for, you know, uh, cases and, and uh, you know, obviously, I'm not saying our healthcare system is in is in good shape. It, it clearly isn't and needs uh, tremendous support. But COVID is not in and of itself imploding our healthcare system. It's it's going to be an added pressure to a lot of other pressures that we have on our healthcare system. But COVID in and of itself is not imploding our healthcare system as it once did a couple of years ago.
1: So having said that, do you feel that testing is still important and vaccinations, is that still a priority?
4: Oh yeah, uh, it absolutely is. We just have to have sound vaccine policy. So for example, we're in the spring of 2023 and our, our, uh, our national vaccine committee has, I think, steered us in the right direction uh, much of the time. And the recommendations now are basically... If you're six months out from your most recent vaccine and, or your most recent infection and you're over the age of 65 or you have an underlying medical condition that puts you at greater risk for severe COVID, you should get a COVID vaccine. I think that's, that's a very reasonable recommendation. Um, you know, it's not entirely clear what the fall recommendations are going to be, but you know, I, obviously we know that these recommendations change, change with time. Uh, similar testing as well. I mean, we, listen, we need to be testing. And testing needs to be accessible to people, uh, and and sadly we've scaled back testing significantly. But you know, just like you can go get a flu test, or a, uh, you know, we should be able to get COVID tests, especially when you're ill and presenting to uh, to medical attention. And again, I'm not saying we need to test everyone every minute of every day, uh, but but certainly having testing accessible is helpful. It can help drive smart individual decisions, and and uh, you know, people, if you have a diagnosis of COVID, you you know, you can obviously stay home and, or wear a mask and prevent yourself from infecting others. And, you know, you can make sound clinical decisions and sound decisions for yourself and others if you actually know what what, uh, what you have.
1: You know, Isaac, some experts in Canada have said that COVID is transitioning into the endemic stage. The WHO, when all was said and done in this declaration last week, said that it still considers COVID-19 to be in the pandemic phase. So are we working at odds here, endemic versus the pandemic phase?
4: I mean, listen, I think we're going to, that's a tough one, uh, because, again, you'll probably get several different answers from several different people. If this is the endemic phase, which it very well might be, that doesn't mean it's over. It just means it's circulating at at a pretty high rate and continues to, sadly, disproportionately impact certain people, people on the older end of the spectrum or people with underlying medical conditions. And we need to take steps to protect everybody, not just some Canadians, we need to protect all Canadians. So, you know, if it is endemic, there's, that's, that's not good. Obviously there's, there's, there's still a lot of COVID out there and it's ebbing and flowing, but still at a, at a higher basal rate, which is, which is tough. If it's in the pandemic phase, obviously that's still not good either because you know, that there's, there's as we just mentioned, there's a lot of COVID out there and maybe things will wind down a bit more. Uh, but, uh, but it's regardless i mean whether we define this as pandemic or whether we define this as, as endemic it doesn't change the fact that we need to take steps to really ensure that we reduce the risk and the probability of infection reduce the frequency of infection have sound vaccine policy have access to therapeutics and ensure that uh, people just get the quality of care that they deserve
1: simple question but it might be difficult to answer where do we go from here
4: uh unclear Mm-hmm. Unclear. I think, uh, you know, life has largely returned to normal for the vast majority of people. Not everyone, but for the vast majority of people. I think people have chosen the path that uh, they're willing to take based on their own perception of risk and safety. Um, we can do a lot to improve the quality of air we have in indoor settings to help not just reduce the risk of COVID, but the risk of other respiratory infections. So I think that's going to be A long-term work in progress we need better vaccines uh, and certainly there's a lot of research and development on improving uh, the types of vaccines that are available to help not just reduce the risk of severe illness but also reduce the risk of infection more robustly we should still be working on better therapeutics as well we certainly have good ones but there's 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 room for improvement and I think if we take a step back and acknowledge that this is not going away we're going to be contending with this for forever you know, I think that's how you could prioritize what we should be doing next, prevention and, and, uh, and therapeutics.
1: Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Infectious Diseases Physician, thank you very much for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Coming up next, first of its kind, auto theft teams.
0: Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The province is investing millions to fight organized crime and auto thefts. Kevin Frankish with Ontario Solicitor General.
0: A vehicle is stolen in this province every 48 minutes. It's a very sobering statistic and one that has actually seen a 14% increase just in the last year. The provincial government has just announced a $51 million plan to attack auto theft. Joining me now to go over this plan is the province's Solicitor General, Michael Kersner. Hello, Mr. Kersner. Hi, how are you? I am uh, quite well. So this plan announced this week comes with a $51 million price tag over the next few years. So exactly how is that money earmarked?
5: Well, firstly, I want to say that we are fighting back against auto theft. We're fighting back because the people stealing our cars are more sophisticated than ever. And our safety is our government's highest priority. I'll tell you how we're fighting back. We're fighting back with this $51 million investment over three years because we want to dismantle the crime organizations. We're creating a new organized crime towing and auto theft team led by the OPP and that's worth about $20 million. We're introducing a new community safety grant that will target auto theft and that's working, that's worth about $18 million. And we are also creating a new major auto theft prosecution response team Worth about fourteen million dollars. We are going to fight back hard.
0: You're right, though. I mean, things have have changed. They become extremely sophisticated. We 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 thought we had auto theft licked by uh, the the automatic ignitions uh, and and other deterrents, but it's like everything that comes out, the thieves seem to be one step ahead.
5: Well you know, we are going to be one step uh, ahead of uh, them and as I said in the strongest possible voice yesterday, I'm putting them on notice, we're putting them out of business. And we believe that the OPP, we believe that our Municipal Police Services, we believe that the First Nations Police Services are absolutely ready to tackle this and we're going to provide them with the resources including the technology that they will be able to do the surveillance with updated technology. And, and we're going to put those stealing our cars out of business.
0: I should point out that York Regional Police have had a, a very effective auto theft squad uh, for years and actually have, have really been helping to lead the way. Have you had a chance to sort of look and learn from, from what YRP are doing?
5: Oh, well, thanks. Uh, you know, I'm very close with uh, York Regional Police. They've got a super chief, Chief Jim McSween. And uh, I have to tell you, like uh, York Regional Police, Peel uh, Police, Toronto, Halton, the the large services have had great success. But what we're doing with the 51 million dollars is we're providing over and above resources to allow them to go at this hard. This is exactly what the government wants to do. We believe everyone has an equal right to live safely in their communities. And we will stop at nothing to make sure that people are safe.
0: We know uh, that um, here in Ontario, unlike uh, in Quebec, our insurance companies are not exactly uh, at a par. In, In Quebec, insurance companies provide incentives for vehicle owners who put tracking devices on their vehicles. Has there been any word from the insurance companies that they want to get on board with you?
5: Well, you know, thanks thanks for that question. We are uh, reviewing the Quebec model. I've asked our deputy minister here to uh, research what's going on in Quebec. It's something we're taking very, very seriously. And if there's elements in the Quebec model that will work with us here in terms of tracking, then we're going to uh, we're going to uh, do it. But. Right now, what we want to do is tell the people that are creating havoc in our communities by stealing cars. You know, I have to tell you, a constituent of mine has had two cars stolen just in the last month. And that constituent is worried that they won't be able to get insurance. We're going to change that. Uh, one
0: Way that a lot of thieves have been uh, have been stealing cars, especially the high end cars, is through the air tags where they they literally go out shopping for the kind of vehicle they want, find it uh, in a parking lot and then slip a little air tag, uh, a, a GPS tracking device and the wheel well or in the undercarriage of the car. And this week, Apple and Google have both announced that they're going to team up to try and combat this as as well. Have you been watching what they've been doing?
5: Well, I've read that uh, New York City is doing something uh, with Apple tags, but we believe that our approach is much more disciplined. We have had the Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP, for a very long time. They are very sophisticated, and by providing them with the additional resources that they will be able to work with the Municipal and First Nations Police Services across Ontario, we believe this disciplined approach by providing the extra resources, by providing the extra manpower, by providing the technology will absolutely be effective. But we are continuing to uh, to learn and we are continuing to listen on what's working in other jurisdictions as well.
0: Has there been concerns raised over AI? I know that we, we have talked about... Uh, uh criminals and bad actors uh, utilizing ai in in whether or not it's tracking these vehicles or whether it's or not it's just getting these vehicles out of the uh, the country was much consideration given to to ai which is still in its infancy
5: well i want to just make one other comment and i'll be happy to answer that you know th- there's a role that our communities play as well and i mentioned this yesterday in my in my presentation and my announcement when we are educating our own community to be aware to look up to keep their periphery in their minds if they see something going on on their street or in somebody a neighbor's driveway, they've got to call the police but AI artificial intelligence will play a role with the technology that we are rolling out you know last week we made two other great announcements, and one of them with a substantial investment in bail enforcement and prosecution capabilities plays to the technology, the role that technology will play. And, uh, and you know, AI is absolutely part of our future and it will form part of the technology that we will be deploying.
0: You brought up the, the point, of course, of uh, if you see something, say something. Uh, and, and you know, I, I don't think, you know, the eyes and ears of people out there uh, are, are the number one way to combat crime of any kind so I'm glad to see that we we have some sort of uh, public education going on to tell people listen you see somebody skulking around in a in a, in a parking lot sort of uh, maybe putting something on a car or 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 just hear something that's you know that's important to get that word out to the public.
5: Well, I can tell you and I want to thank you for for that statement you know there's never been a government there's never been a premier that's more concerned about public safety as Premier Ford and our government and we're really proud of that and that's because we believe we have a role with our community. We have a role to educate them, we have a role to, to stand with them and remind them that our highest priority is their safety. It's been great talking with you. All
0: right. Well, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much. It's it's good as well that you're putting uh, these bad players on notice. And I wish you all the luck. Well, I wish us all the luck with uh, this plan going forward.
1: Great to talk with you. Thanks a million.
0: All right. The Province's Solicitor General, Michael Kersner, has been my guest.
1: After the break, the wonderful world of words. <laughs> the Spelling Bee Championships are coming soon.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region, Ann Romer, and more of The Feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
1: Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. If you're a fan of the spelling bee, the championships are coming to York Region. Richmond Hill, in fact. Shaliza Backus gives us the word.
6: When I was a kid, my parents always made it a point to drive home how important writing and speaking proper English was, and especially spelling. And to be honest, I always did really well on my spelling tests, and that was something I was always proud of. Flash forward to today, so many years later, with the rise of technology and people becoming more dependent on the fact that their devices will always autocorrect for them. It's nice to see that the Spelling Bee of Canada is still going strong after 36 years. Joining me to talk about the national championship taking place at the end of this month is founder Julie Spence. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you. How are you, Shalita? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay. We gotta we gotta rewind a little bit. Take me back to thirty six years ago. How did this all start? (laughs) Okay. So I am from Jamaica, a place
7: called Lucy Hanover. And I noticed in your introduction you spoke about spelling bees that you did. Well back in Jamaica, I was raised under the British system, of course. Mm -hmm. And so speaking, writing All of that was very important uh, when I was growing up. So 36 years ago, the Minister of Education was at the time mentioning that parents should get more involved in the education system here in Canada. And I was a youth director, and uh, one of the things that I always loved when I was growing up was participating in a spelling bee. And the reason being is that I noticed how it really brought the community together. So when I was thinking of what it is that I could do to engage the children, I went right back to thinking of, let's get a spelling bee started. When I first started it, I honestly didn't think it would have been 36 years later that I'd still be doing it. But apparently it is needed and here we are still.
6: That is amazing. You know what amazes me the most is that we're looking at an immigrant from Jamaica who started this amazing thing here in Canada and it's going for 36 years. So congratulations on that thank you Shalita. and you know I, I do want to mention i think it's just part of like caribbean culture where it's like you must speak proper english you must know how to spell because that was definitely embedded in me as a kid
7: well absolutely because you know it's amazing that you say that because growing up in the in the caribbean the expectation really wasn't that high and so our parents ensured that we tried to aim to be in the top two percent which is what was required spelling handwriting, was also another thing that was very important. We spent a lot of time just learning how to hold a pen and to form the letter or pencils. But reading, comprehension, um, we understood that knowledge came from books. We spent a lot of times going to the libraries. And um, we traveled a lot by reading a lot of books. So even coming to Canada, I knew a bit about Canada before I arrived, simply because you read about it. But that is something that our parents really encouraged. And I have to admit that back then our parents really couldn't read their listening skill was great, but what they knew was most important for us is that it was very important that we knew how to read, because that's what, it's a lifelong thing that we're going to need, and how words are important. So they emphasized that to us growing up in Jamaica, and here we are, we had, because we have our language that we spoke, you know, broken, we call mm-hmm. it, but our parents at home always encouraged that we spoke proper
6: English. Yes. Yes, and we're going to flash forward to today. Of course, our parents tried to embed all of these things in us, but today, as I mentioned, you know, there's so much technology and things going on that kids can depend on. Why do you think the spelling bees are still so important?
7: The, the reason being is that parents, like myself, understand how important it is for the children to be able to think on their feet. Therefore, when they participate in Spelling Bees, for instance, it helps to build their confidence. It helps them to be responsible, helps them to set goals. So just participating in an event like this, it emphasizes most of those qualities that the parents want to see in their children, and that's why it is. And the other thing is that at Spelling Bee of Canada, one of the things that we try to do, we encourage participation. In talking with the children, we said, if you participate, you are already a winner, So that's what it is. We just want them to get started. We just want to encourage and teach them the importance of spelling. I'll tell you something. I remember when I started, I would ask children, where do you live? A child would say, for instance, Mississauga Street. And I would say, how do you spell Mississauga? They didn't know how to spell Mm -hmm. Mississauga, the street that they go to day in, day out, going to school. So then we start to teach them its value to understand why it is important to learn words. Yes, we know technology is there, but when you're on the street, it's not always readily available. You know, the system goes down, nothing works, so it's always good for the children to really know that they can depend on themselves and go back to memory on some things that they have already learned.
6: I agree with that 100%, and I think it's funny you mentioned Mississauga because I feel like for decades and decades, if you live (laughs) in the GTA, Mississauga was always on your spelling test. <laughs> and because of those S's yeah so many of them like Mississippi like Mississippi yeah yeah mississauga is our Mississippi. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And you know, one of the things that
7: I realized, once children realize the importance of words, for instance, they could be going for a job interview, they could be late and lose out on an opportunity if they don't know how to spell a word correctly. So we need, with the technology is there, it's really good. We, we always have to keep evolving, but we cannot lose the basics, which is where we stay, keeping those children reading books how important it is to always do that so that's something that we like to emphasize the other thing is that they get a chance to meet other children from across Canada you know because here we are we're here in Ontario but now these children are going to have a chance to meet other children from different parts of Canada you know and I, I watch when the children are meeting and talking at the championship it's really amazing to see that. They make friends, they tell me, oh, this person is still my friend. I met them when we, we participated at the championship.
6: And that is really good. That really is. And and that brings me to my next point because there are a number of kids competing from across York Region, across the GTA, and across the country. How many spelling bees do these kids need to go through uh, before they make it to nationals?
7: So what happens is that when the first phase of it is registration. When they register, they receive us for the list of words. And from there, we have what we call the regional competition. So, from each community, holds a competition. In the first place, person from there advances to the championship. When they register, by the way, they do have a set of words that they re- that they receive. But usually, it's the tiebreaker words that the children have to. win on to enter to the
6: championship so from the regional they get an opportunity to go on to the national okay and what prizes are up for grouse because there has to be some sort of (laughs) you know (laughs) encouragement (laughs) involved
7: you know it it's amazing how i used to think that but you know what i'm realizing just recently a lot of children i attended a few bees and the cash didn't seem to matter to the children as much as the trophy so at the championship, they're probably going to get $1,000. Like the children, I remember, went to the regional B, and they said, oh, we win, we win cash? Oh, I'm just interested in the trophy. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, a, it's just amazing. And different children win, they get the cash. I remember one child, she won, and she said, you know what, to her mom, I would like this money to be donated to, to people where those children do not have clean water. So I thought that the cash would have been the driving force for participation but not necessarily.
6: (laughs) Wow I love that. (laughs) Now the Spelling Bee of Canada's National Championship is taking place on Sunday May 28th at the Sheridan Parkway Hotel in Richmond Hill and I've been speaking with the founder Julie Spence. Julie if people want to attend the event where can they get tickets and is there anything going to be streamed or updated online?
7: Yes so it is actually going to be streamed on the Spelling Bee of Canada YouTube cbcsports.ca, and C CBC Gen. There are no tickets. Uh, they can actually go to Spelling of Canada's website, and they can just sign up to attend the event. Just come on out to cheer the children. As you know, we have three age categories. Ages 6 to 8 is a primary, 9 to 11 is a junior, and 12 to 14 is intermediate. So there are three age categories. So we're going to be there
6: from 9:45 to 5 a.m. until it finishes. Lovely. It sounds like it's going to be an amazing event. And I just love watching these young kids and you see how confident they are. And I think it's a really good character building exercise for them as well, if Absolutely.
2: anything.
7: Absolutely. You are so right in that. And I remember the year when the word tsunami was introduced. Of course, none of the children were able to spell that word. And that same year, a tsunami happened. Wow. And I remember the children calling up and said, We were telling the teacher about tsunami because we got that in the spelling bee. It was (laughs) a word that we got. And it was so amazing because different children have different words that they hold on to and that sort of thing. So, you know, like you mentioned, building character, also learning how to win and also learn defeat and Mm -hmm. how to handle that. Because at Spelling Bee of Canada, the participation is a graduated process. So they can start from age 6 all the way up to age 14. And that also is amazing.
6: That really is. Once again, the Spelling Bee of Canada's National Championship happening on May 28th at the Sheridan Parkway Hotel. Founder Julie Spence, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much.
1: Jim Lang is next with getting more women in the game.
8: The power of women in sports has never been stronger than it is right now in 2023, from international soccer to professional basketball to hockey, you name it. And there is a passion and thirst and desire for everyone to consume and watch and be a part of women's sports and thrilled to be talking to the CEO of Women in Sport in Canada, Alison Sandmeyer-Graves, to talk more about how we can be a part of it. Allison, how are you? I'm great. Good morning. Uh, it, it's, it's so exciting to me to see we just had this incredible World Hockey Championship in Brampton. Christine Sinclair is a national hero to boys and girls across the country. And we have these incredible women playing in the WNBA. And the thought that the WNBA could be coming to Canada has people excited. I, I can't think of a better time to invest time and money into women's sports than right now.
3: Well, we, we are inclined to agree. <laughs> it is definitely, it's definitely time for investors to take another look at women's professional sport in this country. And we've just produced a report with BCG and with Canadian Tire's Support that really looks at the business case for professional sport here and frankly paints the picture that the market is ripe and it's time to invest.
8: You know, and, and I'm, I have an extensive background in sports radio and television, and once upon a time you would hear tired old executives trot out the line, well, no one really watches it, but then the ratings prove them wrong time and time again.
3: Well, you're right. There is a lot of gender bias that still exists within sport and sport business, and that's when one of the things that's held back investment in this space, the belief that women's sport isn't as exciting or as entertaining as men's sport, and therefore not worthy of investment uh, but as you say like that is uh, that's a bias that is being blown up all the time and when you look around the world there are records being set all the time for audiences for viewership of women's sport properties and given the level of talent that we have in Canada and the uh, culture that we have here, as well as 20 million Canadians already engaging in some capacity in women's professional sport as fans, there is a real case to be made for investing and the growth that can come from that.
8: Well, real quick, there's a couple of other subjects I want to touch on, Alison, but I ran across a story this morning that there was a woman who used her life savings to open a sports bar that only plays women's sports, and she's brought in gross revenue of a million dollars in eight months because of the passion that people have in her community to go to her sports bar and watch women's sports.
3: Well, absolutely. I think passion is a great descriptor for fans of women's sports. Uh, they've had to work harder than most to to be fans because it's been tough to access. Um, still, well over 90% of sports media is dedicated to men's sports which makes it hard to find and to watch women's sports often. And so those who've made the effort to seek it out get rewarded with, number one, a fantastic product, great to watch, but also really authentic, accessible athletes um, and just great storylines. And so there's... um, i think fans are really showing up for women's sports. they're demanding more and i should add that the fans of women's professional sports are young and diverse which is also a really valuable audience for for a lot of companies and so it's just one of the reasons why women's professional sport is an attractive business opportunity
8: indeed speaking with Allison sandmeyer Graves, ceo of women in sports canada we have seen so many examples of businesses who want to attach themselves to athletes and celebrities because it's good business. And I, and, and I see a Christine Sinclair, a, a Sarah Nurse, a, you name the women athlete in this country, the female athletes. And to me, it's just good business if I'm a big company in Canada to associate my brand with their name and their the way they are on and off the field of play. Well, absolutely, and it's really
3: interesting when you look at the uh, name, image, and likeness deals that are happening in the U.S., uh, most of the athletes being signed up are women. There's a lot of power in the female athlete, and um, there's there's a real opportunity that our athletes do represent in this country, and I should say that it is absolutely a business. Uh, A business decision and a business case that we make in this study, but there are clear social benefits to investing in in women's professional sport as well, which means it's a great fit for investors that are looking to get that commercial impact and also social impact, or often referred to as double bottom line.
8: I think, Alison, you alluded to it earlier, because the women have to work harder to gain a foothold in the TV market in the corporate world. They carry themselves with such class and distinction. And, and we've seen some recent problems with hockey candidate. We've seen recent problems with other sports. And I mean, off the top of my head, I can't think of any with some of our top female athletes.
3: Well, we had an event last Monday in Toronto to launch this study of Brianne Jenner uh, from uh, the PHF was sorry, the PWHPA. Don't mm-hmm. let me confuse those. It yeah. uh, was on our panel and uh, she talked about women athletes really being partners in the process. They understand what's at stake. They understand that, you know, we're starting from the beginning and we need to build something here in Canada that doesn't exist in a significant way. And the athletes are as committed as anybody to seeing that come to fruition. So they really are showing up as partners in the, in the whole exercise. And I think that is a really powerful uh, platform to move
8: from. Okay, for, for our listeners like me who, who love watching our international athletes, our Canadian athletes in a, a lot of these different sports, these women who do such great things all the time, what can we do to help it get to the next level so there's more money and more advertising and more, I guess, star power for them that they deserve?
3: Well, fans make this whole business go around. Uh, They're absolutely at the heart of all of it. So. Kudos to those who are already showing up uh, and participating. Uh, It's time to demand more. Show the investors that you care, that this is something that you want to invest your time and money in by finding it and watching it when it's on TV, when it's streaming, engaging in social media, buying the jerseys, whatever that might be. There's so many different ways to activate as a fan these days in ways that work for you. And all of it communicates that this is a real market, this is a real business opportunity, and it's only going to make the investment case stronger.
8: I know there must be some days, personally, Alison, where you you feel like you're banging your head against the wall to deal with the old boys club. But do you see it opening up and uh, the path going the right way in your future?
3: Well, it's really encouraging to see some Canadian companies really putting themselves forward of late Canadian Tire being one of them you know there's investors in the new women's pro soccer league that's been announced by Project 8 DoorDash being one of the latest investors so there's certainly some signs that companies are are awake to this opportunity they need things to invest in yeah <laughs> so, We're really looking for owners to step up with teams and leagues, and then that gives the sponsors and the media opportunities to invest. And it really does take an ecosystem. It's going to need all of these players to come together, um, really at the same time to stand this up in Canada. And it's going to usher in a new era for sport in Canada and for women's
8: sport in particular. Well, I think what's exciting for me, who's been involved in broadcasting and sports most of my adult life, I... I see the current stars and the established stars and the legacy stars, but then I see the next wave. And, Alice, I'm like, if you think it's good now, you just wait another five or ten years, it's going to be really good.
3: Well, the talent pipeline is a key piece of it. And we lose so many girls in their teen years. One in three drop out before they even get into adulthood. And that is such a loss for them. It's a loss for our communities and definitely – for our national teams and our pro leagues to come. And so we need to keep girls in the game and having these professional opportunities with all of these role models and all of this inspiration will go a long way to keeping girls in sport and giving that talent pipeway somewhere to go in Canada, which is going to mean great things all
8: around. Well said, Allison. Thank you so much for taking time to speak to us on the feed and uh, keep up the great work. And I can't wait to see what our women are going to do in the future. Thanks. Always happy to talk about women's sport.
1: If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.